Well, the question we're going to talk about this morning is how do people change? Honestly, I think it's one of the most important questions in, in the New Testament. And actually, it's one of the questions I think that we wrestle with without often having a good answer to it. How, how do we change? Is it, is it just like turning over a new leaf? Is it like getting one of those new organizers that helps you become a better person? Is it reading a book? Is it getting a life coach? Maybe is it reading your Bible all the way through as we've been doing? Well, this morning we're finding ourselves in the, in the book of Galatians because we've been reading through the Bible as a congregation, which means y'all are way holier than you used to be. Right? Have you changed? Has it changed you? And if so, how? How does change really work? So we've been reading, and then every week what we do is we, we pull something out of the particular passages we've been reading, and we, we explore it, we examine it, and we invite you to look a little bit more deeply into the, the depths of the beauty of what God has written and how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. You see, the Bible gives the answer to this, that Christians are changed supernaturally by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God and by the Spirit of God only. Now, it's not that there aren't practices. It's not that there aren't means, disciplines, pathways by which God uses, but they are all spirit-empowered change. That's how we change. That's what the Bible says. But how does it work? What are the underlying systems and, and processes? Like, if it's just that simple, why doesn't it just happen? Well, I, I think it's probably, this is one of the better passages in all of Scripture to describe what that looks like how Christ brings that kind of change. You see, when Christ makes you a Christian, the power of the resurrection of Jesus flows through you when you believe in him. That's the beginning. We talked about that with, with uh, when Steve talked about, um, what did you talk about? <laughs> Justification. There we have it. That was y'all's cue. You're supposed to, you know, help. But, but, but that's what makes you a Christian, right? It's the powerful, the, re, the resurrection power of Jesus coming into your life as you put your faith in him. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not saying a particular kind of prayer. It's not walking down an aisle. It's the resurrection power of Jesus in you, making you someone new. When Jesus makes you his. And that's the theme of Ephesians chapter one, which we also read this week. And Paul gives this amazing, like it's a poem, basically. It's an amazing picture of what it happens when, when you become a Christian. All the things that kind of like pile in on you and become true about you. And then after this, he, he prays this prayer. And listen to the prayer. He says in Ephesians 1, verse 17, he says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of, for which you have been called what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And listen, and, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And Paul wants us to believe that this is available. That's why he's praying that. He's saying the only way that you're going to change is if the Spirit makes this power present, effective. Not just some cognitive idea, but that it actually resides in you, that you would know that it's yours. It is yours. And so he's praying that we would experience that because he knows that the work of the Spirit is the only hope for that kind of real 
change. Now, when you read or you study this passage in, in Galatians in particular, it makes, or even if you hear something like what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1, it, it, can, make, it can make your head kind of sag, right? Like, that's, that's some pretty lofty words. I, I mean, one, one commentator says, like, Paul took all the power words and he just shoved them in there. Like, they're all, like, this, all this power, might and power and great, and where is it? You ever find yourself waking up in the morning or being on a drive to work or having a conversation with your spouse or your friends or like there's supposed to be a resurrection power? Where is it? How does this, how does it work? Why do I not seem to experience it? It's pretty common. Paul prays. He prays. He says, listen, there's, there's a lot at stake here. Holy Spirit is going to have to bring it to us. He's going to have to show us things that we otherwise are just not tending to see. But let's summarize a little bit of just, just how, do, how do we get here? Let's start from the beginning. Without Christ, my heart's dead, right? It's rotten. It's, it's smelly, if you will. Ephesians says, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. It's true of me. It's true of you before Jesus. That's our old nature. That's what I was born with. That smelly, dead carcass of a being was dead. The depth of my life, that was true. But then Paul says that when Jesus came to indwell, that, that deadness, that fear, that, that guilt, that darkness, that, that hopelessness, that anger, all that deadness began to disappear. It didn't go away immediately, but there was a process of resurrection where a new life, listen, a new life was implanted. A new life was implanted in my soul. And I began, and you began, and when you came to know Christ, to, to sprout, to, to begin to, to grow slowly, to, to, to bud. That was resurrection life beginning to bud in you. And we began to see, hopefully for the first time in our life, we began to see fruit. Real, real fruit, real change, tangible change. What Paul described as love, joy, peace, and we'll get to that in a bit. So there's within this, this real power of change. It's within our hearts. God's given it to us. He's put it there. And Paul wants every Christian to know that it's there. Everyone to have that, the knowledge of that power that, that overcomes, that, that unseats he wants us to experience it, not to just know it. But there's this battle. There remains this battle for our hearts and, frankly, in our hearts between two competing desires, two competing affections. And that's what we're going to work out this morning as we work through this passage together. So let me just read these first two verses again, and then we'll walk through the outline. But I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so this morning, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at what the flesh produces. What does the flesh produce? And what does the spirit produce? And how do we walk by the spirit into change? Now, 
We see Paul doing it at the beginning of this section in one way is to, to give us a picture of what that darkness looks like. What Paul calls the flesh. Now, this is, and honestly, I think Galatians 5 is one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And, and so to understand the flesh, this is really, really pivotal. So stick with me for a second. The, the, the flesh, which some people in other translations call it the, the sinful nature, which is not right. The flesh is, we have this, this new nature, right? And our, and our old nature is gone. The, the deadness is gone, but something remains. What remains is the flesh. The flesh is the leftover programming, if you will, that has been a part of our old deadness all along. It's leftover programming with all of our, our old habits, so those old attitudes, those thoughts that we created over time at the beginning of our time. So the flesh is this leftover remains, but these remains are powerful. Because they're the leftover system by which we have been trying to save ourselves. Whether you came to faith later in life or from the beginning, there is this operating system that's seeking to rescue you from all the things of life, from all the sorrow, all the uncertainty that isn't Jesus. Loved ones, we've been working for years on saving ourselves, and we've developed, well, a system of self-salvation that probably works pretty well, and it's great because it's, it's unique to each one of us, and yours looks different than mine, and mine looks different than yours, but that's what we've done. So Christ comes in, he gives us a new heart, but this old system, what I've heard one people say that the person says, this, this old husk remains. It's still there. In essence, the flesh is the part or the aspect of the heart that hasn't been fully renewed by the Spirit yet. So that's what the Bible uses, use the word flesh to talk about this leftover husk. And do you feel it? Do you, do you know, do you know your, that, that leftover husk in you? I do. It surfaces. Paul says it does more than surfacing. It says it works. Paul gives us some of the characteristics of this leftover husk and what it produces in verse 19 through 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. That's supposed to be the hint of like, we all know this, right? Like we can just be honest with ourselves that this is the stuff inside of us. The works of the flesh are evident. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's also like New Testament language for like this is not comprehensive, it's just illustrative. So there's more. So if you're not like, whoa, I'm 15 for 15, there's more. So you're good. You're, you're a part of this too. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these, these categories have been broken down in different ways by different people, but I'm going to take these 15 words and kind of break them down into two sections. One is what we're going to call the blatant sins. I'm calling them the animal sins. Um, and um, these are the sins that are not allowed to do in church, okay? So, like, we're going to go with sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality. 
So yeah, those are not okay here. Um, that has to do with sexual addiction, right? Disordered sexual appetites, excesses, out of control sex. There's a couple more, two words that talk about substance abuse, right? Drunkenness and orgies, some sort of excessive use of alcohol that controls you, that has control over you. So those would be two others that were like, yeah, don't come hammered to church, good. Everyone knows that. See, we're all on the same page. It's like, yeah, that's the works of the flesh. I recognize those. And of course, then there's two other words um, that have to do with the occult, right? You've got idolatry and sorcery or witchcraft, which is still not Harry Potter. I don't care what you all have emailed me. But sorry, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we talked about Harry Potter and that's not witchcraft. Just saying. <laughs> Paul says so. Um, but, but witchcraft, so we're talking like, you know, animism, like, I mean, like cutting animals in half and like worshiping the sun or whatever. That's what we're talking about, sorcery uh, or idolatry. So those are, the, those are the blatant ones. Are we all agree with those, right? Are we all good? Like, let us not do those here. We all good? Okay, cool. And you're like, you know what? I know some people who do that. Not in here, but I know some people who do that. And some of us are going like, yeah. Those people, the blatant people, those sound like works of the flesh. But Paul's kind. He loves you. He's like, there's more. They're going to call the, the other eight, which, by the way, is more than seven, are the, uh, we'll call them the permissible sins. The ones that, you know, you can do in church and everyone's just like, well, it's probably not okay, but I'm not exactly sure what to do about it, so it's okay. Paul gives us this distinction we're calling the permitted sins. And he says, listen, here it is, enmity and strife, jealousy, you know, like wanting what someone else has, fits of anger and rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. It sound, doesn't it sound like Facebook? I mean, it sounds like, you know, like, like this is like what a Twitter account is for, right? To actually fuel this reality. But it happens in the church. It happens here. I know, I know you would think it wouldn't, but it happens here, these, these words. They describe realities that happen here, and they're the evidence, they're the product of the flesh. They show up here. They show up in me. And these are marks of spiritual deadness, of the old life, the kind of things that we brought into our conversion or that have worked themselves out even in us after our conversion. And it, and it shows that spiritual resurrection has not been fully applied these things are still there. The old husk is still alive. It's very much alive in some of our lives. So that's what, that's what the flesh produces, okay? That's, that's, what it, that's what it makes. That's what it, like, boop, boop, boop. What does the spirit produce? Well, we said spirit's against the flesh. Flesh is against the spirit. So let's go to, to Paul's description on the other side. This new life, this spiritual life, this resurrected life. What, is it, what does it produce? Verse 22, but this fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I'm going to do a little, a little caveat, a little aside here. I, I read that list and you probably had one of two reactions. Either you're like, whew, that list is so much better than the other list. It just feels good, you know, They're like, yes, there's gentleness, goodness. You had one of two reactions. This is typical of how we have reactions to these kinds of lists of Paul's. We usually feel crushed by them. Like, okay, love, joy, peace, patience. Oh, I can't do it. It's too much. I'm not joyful. We, I'm lost at the first one. What do we, uh, you know what, I'm out. 
good luck, peace out, like I'm sure I'll be better next time. And that's what happens, right? We either read them or you hear that I'm about to talk about them and you like start buckling under the weight of them. And others of us look at those and go like, you know, I'm actually like majority, I think I got the majority of them. Like I think I'm doing okay, at least I'm doing better then. And so we're like going like, yeah, maybe some micro improvements would be helpful for my resume, you know? So that's the kind of the general two people in here. If there's a third type of person, let me know afterwards. Otherwise, I think that covers us all in some way, shape or form. And I just wanna say, Paul actually helps us with the reality of the weight of this. And, and this is another like fundamental spiritual reality about us that we must hold on to if we're going to be moving forward in the faith. And it shows up in verse 17. So before we get to the fruit of the spirit, let me jump into verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, right? We said that. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Okay, so the flesh has desires, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And the, but the spirit has desires, and they're, they're against each other, it says. For these are opposed to each other. Okay, there's, there's, there's battle, there's conflict. What's next? To keep you from doing the things you what? You can say it. You want to do. Do you hear that? It, it's getting, the flesh is, is battling against the spirit to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You know what this is telling you? Do you know what you want to do? Because of the implantation of the Spirit in you, you want to do what God wants. That, that changes everything. Like when we talk about community groups and stuff, like we talk about like the, that we assume that the life of Christ is in each other. And so what we get to do with one another when we're in community is we get to call out that life. We don't go like, man, if I could just get some of the spirit into you, maybe we could have some progress in our group or in our marriage. But no, no, no. It's in there. We want to follow God. We want to submit to the Lord. We want to obey his commands. That's what this tells us. It's not just here, but we want to. Loved ones, you may be sitting here going like, I don't know, I don't really feel like I want to, but the spirit in you wants to. You want to. And the spirit is actually beckoning you forward to amen with the truths of God. That means you have a forward-leaning disposition. Isn't that good news? I mean, that means you're actually leaning into what God wants. Like your nature has been changed. You're not primarily being drugged downstream. You're buoyant and moving forward. Now, there's participation, and we'll talk about that, but, but you want to. And so what I want to do is I want to beckon and invite your heart to go like, all right, Holy Spirit, I don't feel like it necessarily, or maybe I do feel like it, and I'd like to agree with you. I want to amen, I want to yes the invitation to, to hear about what it looks like to produce, this, what the Spirit produces, and to say, I, 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 I want it. Lord, I, I want it. P please do so in me. So with that in mind, let me just kind of walk through briefly these this fruit of the spirit, not these, but this. One of the things that C.S. Lewis always points out is that you can't really know something unless you know its opposite. So one of the ways in which we're gonna look at these is understanding what is the opposite of this. But the first fruit of the spirit is love. This is just a biblical agape, right? And it's just, the, it's the opening of yourself and serving someone else for the intrinsic value of who they are. It's opening yourself and serving someone else for the intrinsic value of who they are, not for what they do for you. That's the fundamental difference. And the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is, as the Bible tells us, perfect love casts out 
fear, Jesus says. The opposite of love is fear, it's self-protection. In protecting yourself, you cannot love someone else. You can't do it at the same time. That's why in our connected communities and spiritual friendships, if you're bound by fear, we'll be bound with self-protection. We cannot love one another. But that's what the Spirit produces. It produces love. There was a book a few years ago on parenting. It was called Loving Our Children Without Sacrificing Ourselves. You have children, some of you. What a great sentiment. (laughs) But it's not possible. That's impossible. Love without sacrificing yourself is not love. Love by definition is sacrifice. Love by definition is self-opening. It's making yourself vulnerable, vulnerable to rejection and pain and cost. Love is serving someone else. It's putting yourself out. The counterfeit is self-affection to use other people for ourselves. What about joy? Joy is delighting in God for the intrinsic value of who he is. It's looking upward and being like, you are the most beautiful thing there is and delighting in him for who he is. The opposite of joy is elation, right? It's not sadness, but it's elation. It's being primarily excited about the, the gifts under the tree versus the purpose of what it is. It's, it's elation in the blessings of the Lord and not in the Lord. Which, of course, you know, when the blessings of the Lord shift, then suddenly, well, he's not so great anymore. But joy is saying, I, I delight in you regardless of what my circumstances look like, regardless because of who you are. Joy is always that delight in God. Peace actually is... A word I think closest probably is shalom probably is one of the closer ways of thinking about it. It's, it's a confidence and a rest in God's wisdom for the control of all things. It's believing that he knows what he's doing and what he's doing is best. And so I have peace. I have rest. It's confidence in the sovereignty of God. It's not the absence of strife. It's not thinking that somehow we know better than God, but actually believing that he has us. And so it's the opposite of, of peace is, is, is anxious control. It's, you know what? You need some help. I, I got this. Patience. Patience means a, a forgiving spirit versus an angry one. It's facing trouble without blowing your top or or lashing out at others. It's the opposite of patience is irritability. It's, it's a short fuse, little bursts of anger. Patience is a consistent lifestyle of forgiveness. What about kindness? Kindness is, is the opposite of kindness is envy. But kindness is really ultimately generosity as opposed to, to jealousy. It's a delight in seeing other people do well. Now, let me take a step. The spirit in you leans forward to see other people do well and for you to delight in that. That, that, That's what he longs for you. That's actually what it looks like and means to be God. God is kind. He delights to see our good. 
think about what it might look like to be excited when your neighbor's son or your neighbor's daughter excels in the field or academically or gets into a college that yours didn't or couldn't, seeing peers being promoted and being genuinely and generously glad for them. It's the absence of envy. And then there's goodness. The best word for goodness is just integrity. Goodness is sincerity, and the opposite is hypocrisy. With goodness, there's just, there's no hidden agendas. You're not a different person at home than you are at work. You're not a different person around the poker table than you are at church. Like, you're the same. You match. You have integrity. Spirit of goodness. And there's faithfulness. Well, the word's pretty clear, right? Pretty clear, dependability. Being a wholehearted person, being reliable, dependable, trustworthy. It'd be someone who keeps their word. God's a promise keeper. The opposite of faithfulness, of course, is just unreliability, being the kind of person you can't trust, you can't rely on, whose word is not good. And there's gentleness. Gentleness just, it means humility. Again, now humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I know we've heard that a hundred times. It's a blessed self-forgetfulness. It's, it's a blessed lack of self-consciousness. It's a detachment from thinking about how you're coming across at any and all times. It's being wildly unaware of what other people might be saying, thinking, or doing in light of your being around. I would love more of that. And lastly, self-control, which is the ability to choose the important over the urgent. It's, it's self-management. It's time management. It's being under control, working towards what's important, fighting off the impulsiveness, being enslaved to our appetites. Well, that's the profile. That's the profile of, of a renewed heart of a heart that's been restored and resurrected by the power of Jesus. So how, how are you feeling? I didn't say how you do. Well, you weren't supposed to do. I just said, how, how are you feeling? We have this picture of the, 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 this is what happens. This is what the flesh produces. And then here's, here's what the spirit produces. And you may be like, you know what's interesting? These don't seem like they match with each other. It's not like a one for one. Seem to be broader and more general when it comes to the, the fruit of the Spirit. But this is what a renewed life looks like. And, and it's what the Spirit wants to produce in you. And it's what the Spirit of God in you wants to produce in you. And what we hope to produce in each other. And frankly, what I long to see produced in, in each of us. More and more. Now, just to be clear, by definition, fruit grows, right? Which means sometimes it's a little embryonic, it's tiny. Other times it's getting to full bloom, and other times it's very ripe. And so we're all at different places when it comes to what it looks like to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. But we are to manifest it. We grow. That's what fruit does. And the Spirit is making that happen in us and inviting us to cooperate, to participate. So how does this happen? How does this, how does this work, 
this change thing. If this is moving from the kinds of works of the flesh towards exhibiting these fruits of the fruit of the spirit, how, how does it actually happen, and why does it not happen as much as we wish it did? Verse sixteen again said, "But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." So, so if you're going to walk in line with the Spirit, if you're going to walk consistently with the reality of the Spirit, you're not going to end up doing these flesh things. So how do we walk by the Spirit? I think verse 24 really kind of breaks out the two key elements to what it might mean to be free from the flesh and therefore to be exhibiting the Spirit. Verse 24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So how does the, what does the flesh do? It's not what it produces, but what does it do? Because we're supposed to crucify it, it says here. Well, it says that it has passions. It has desires. It's like it's alive. Now, the word desires here, this is a, another just key understanding element of the New Testament. These are not doesn't mean evil desires. It's very important. It's not, hey, of course, bad desires, yes, or even desires being bad, no. The word, and this is a key New Testament word, the key is, the word is epithumia, which is over-desire. It's a disproportionate desire. It's an out-of-control desire. It's an inordinate desire. It's a drive. And our flesh creates this drive, this inordinate desire. How does it do that? Well, the flesh takes good things like family or money or enjoyment of food or drink, the approval of others, just fine, comfort, beauty, it takes peace or security or it takes order. And what it does is it, it, it pulls that thing into the center of our heart and in pulling it into the center of our heart, it says, this is what I have to have. If I have this, then I'll be okay. And if I don't have this, then I am nothing. I have nothing. Or my life is over. That's how it works. But let me illustrate it because it's real easy to talk about in the air and you can think about other things. But let me illustrate this a little bit. I love to be on time. I, I love to be early. Now, I, I think that, I think we might all agree that being on time is a good thing. I'm not saying it's the most important thing. I'm just saying we would probably all agree being on time. Hey, kind of a good thing. But now, <clears throat> there are times when I can't be on time, and sometimes those are my fault. And sometimes those are other people's faults. And so here, here's, here's how this works. Being on time is a good thing. And I will find myself, because of a meeting that ran a little bit late that I did not anticipate, or because of Becky, um, or other things, um, because, uh, and or like uh, traffic, like people not knowing how to use a roundabout. Alpharetta people, we good? <laughs> And, and like, if I know I might be late, and if, you, if I've had a meeting with me or whatever, and like, I think I might be late, you're getting a text from me that's like, I think I might be running a couple minutes late. Now, I would, first of all, that's courtesy, right? 
but the reason that text is coming is because I have to be on time. I have to be on time. Now, why, Matt? Why do you have to be on time? Well, I grew up in a home where we, you know, if you're on time, you're late, that whole thing. But, but more than that, like if I'm, if I'm late, or let's say it this way, if when I'm on time, like being on time means you're dependable. Being dependable means you're respectable. If you're respectable, then you can be trusted. But, but it, goes even, it goes even deeper than that. When, when I think I'm going to be late, I actually feel like I'm at risk of rejection. Like it, it can get that fragile. I don't mean two minutes late, you know, though that does bother me. Um, but like if I'm going to be 10 minutes late, I feel like I've violated you. And I'm actually thinking, you know what? Like you're, you're not, what you're thinking about me at this point is like, how do we trust him with anything? And so it goes all the way down to like, I, I'm afraid of rejection. You're going to reject me internally somehow. And, and it's untenable. And so you know what happens when you're in the car with me and I'm going to be late? You can ask Becky for the details, but irritable. I get angry. I start saying and thinking things about people that you're not allowed when you've gone to seminary. Like... I mean, there's times where it's irrational. I'm not present in the car anymore. Like, Becky, we could have been talking about something really important. Like, I'm gone. Like, we're not, we're late. Like, I'm sorry. I'm just, why? Why is it so powerful? You see, what happens is the flesh comes in. It takes something as simple and good. It could take anything. Or it could take, it could take sex. It can take friendship. It can take, take peace, comfort. Something like order. Things get out of order and you want to murder somebody? You see, that's the flesh coming in. It's taking order or it's taking timeliness and it's dragging it into the middle of the heart and it's saying, this is what will make you be okay. And, and it's at risk. And so what happens is the manifestations of the flesh come from that. But see, that's the crazy thing about the flesh is it actually draws in primarily, mostly, good things to begin with. It says I have to be ultimate. It's good to be on time. But you have to be on time at all costs, regardless of the effect. It's an over-desire. We must get to the energy behind our over-desires. Our flesh is epithum, it's over-desiring. And it's pulling things into the center of that. And, and you may be like the person who's late and doesn't care. I know, I'm married to that person. And she genuinely doesn't care. And I'm baffled. Like, I want some of that. Also, I don't, you know. But see, but we're like fully different. Like, that would be ridiculous. Her flesh won't pull that into the center of her heart. Do you see? Which is why we look at each other and we're like, what the immature. <laughs> and then it's our turn. We know it, right? But that's how it works. It's so important to understand how it works. Because you can say, well, I'm just an angry person. It's like, no, 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 no. Well, I just drink because I'm trying to, you're not, it's not an alcohol problem. It's not a, it's, pornography is not actually a, a sex problem, right? It's an over-desire of something else. It's an escape from something else that you're either not getting or not getting around to. 
It's over desire and your flesh is inflaming it. That's how it works. That's how we work. See, the flesh is not just making us do bad things. Flesh is what makes good things into ultimate things. In this passage, God's inviting us to recognize our own flesh, to know it, to understand how it operates, how the problem is underneath the problem. You've heard me say this before, right? There's a thing under the thing. And, and, and so often we find ourselves trying to achieve the, the fruit of the spirit by scratching at the surface of the fruit of the, of the works of the flesh, trying to just, you know, if we could just kind of scratch them off a little bit, get them out of the way. And it's like, whoa, it's, it's way deeper than that. So it's clouding out the reality of what the fruit of the spirit would look like lived out in us because something else has slid and slid into the center of our hearts in that moment. God invites us to recognize this in our own flesh, understand why some of our emotions are out of control. There's habits we can't break. As I said, if you have if you have a drinking problem, you don't have an alcohol problem, you have an over-desire problem. It's manifesting in numbing maybe, but... If you're consumed by anger, if you're crippled by anxiety, you have an over-desire problem. What is it? What's at play? God wants freedom for us in that, through the Spirit. And loved ones, we won't be able to grow in the fruit of the Spirit unless we, we first understand why the works of the flesh have so much power. We have to know them, but it won't be enough to just know them. We have to recognize them, yes, but it won't be enough. You need more than that. You can't just say, great. I recognize my fresh systems. I see what's going on. I understand way better. Matt, just be late from now on and don't worry about it. I understand. Not going to work if I just try to stop. We need something else. It's not enough. And the answer to what we need need is the beginning of verse 24. When Paul says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see what he's saying? It's, it's the gospel. You see, see, the flesh would tell you, those who, this is how the flesh would turn this verse around. Those who crucify the flesh with its passions and desires can belong to God. It's actually what we would call the, the works of the law. If, if you want to be able to know that you belong, well, crucify the works of the flesh. Flesh tells us if you're really good, if you surrender rightly, if, if you put sin to death, if you do the right things, if you're, if you're really, really committed this time, if you're, if you're truly pure, if you're very, very good, if you're deeply more, if you, moral, if you crucify flesh, then you will belong to Christ Jesus. 
But that is not what the gospel says. Those who already belong, those who are already his, those who have convinced themselves in their heart and have been convinced by God that they belong to him are the ones who can crucify the flesh and therefore be free to live out the fruit of the Spirit. Belonging, and we know this because we've been, we read through the Old Testament together, belonging is covenant language, right? It's God back on Sinai, it's God back in multiple times throughout the Old Testament saying, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And then this is what it's going to look like to follow me. This is what it's going to look like to exhibit the life, my life in you. But it's covenant language, it's belonging. We just, so great, Joel. We just, you're singing, I belong. Like, it's like, well, that couldn't have been more preparatory. I, I, if, what, what this is telling us is that to the degree in which that drives and goes all the way to the bottom of our soul, to that degree we will find ourselves gaining momentum and freedom from the flesh and, and delight and power and manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Only to the degree that we know that we belong to Christ Jesus are we, that we're absolutely convinced of his unconditional love for us will we be able to destroy the flesh and its behaviors. Because the flesh is a liar. It's based on a lie. It's based on a lie that God says you can't be loved the way you are. You have to be loved the way you become once you've done this or that. It's found in the idea that you can't be accepted like this. And let's be clear, you're not acceptable like this, but you've been made acceptable in Christ, which is why those who belong to Christ Jesus can crucify the flesh. So, loved ones, I, the invitation this morning, the, the call this morning is not, all right, now belong. Because that's, that's not the one we have control over. That's not, the, that's not the exhortation. That's not the imperative in the text. The invitation is to crucify, is to walk by the Spirit, to, to listen to the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. And you know what the Spirit is always doing? Always doing. This is his job. This is what he does. He's going, Jesus. Look, look at Jesus. Oh, you want to know if you belong? Yeah, look at Jesus. Do you know, no matter if it matters that if you show up late to a party that everyone's not going to be like, what a loser and unreliable friend you are? Because Jesus loves and accepts me. And so if I can get that in my drive, which is what I've been trying to learn to do. I mean, I was literally repenting with Becky. I was like, I cannot continue to be this person. Anyway, like, I was, like, I was like, Lord, it doesn't matter to you. I'm good with you. You are good with me. It doesn't matter if I'm late. And if you reject me because I'm late, I have one who accepts me. Like, it's the only antidote, you see? So I have to go back to the belonging in order to move into, like, not getting angry at being late. Do you see? It's not just about, like, don't be angry anymore. It doesn't work. You know it doesn't work. You've tried which is why this is where real change happens. When we know that we know that we know that we belong to him. When we listen to the spirit and his voice is saying the same thing over and over. When you're reading your Bible, he's going like, Jesus, look for Jesus. Look, look for the gospel words that are inviting you into belonging, not into just doing, but to doing out of belonging because you want to, because he's that lovely.
Do you see the word crucify? Crucify the flesh with its desires? Like it's, it's taking that flesh stuff and going like, yeah, I got nowhere to take this, so I'm just going to take it to Jesus, and I'm going to pound it here. And, and as, I, as I see him crucified, and I take this and I say, you know what? There is no way that this is more beautiful, that this is more trustworthy, that this is more reliable than the one who chose to do that for me. And it starts losing its power. It's the only way. It's the only way, loved ones. And that's why this meal is so awesome. That's why we do it every single week. Because we forget. You come in thinking it's about you trying harder and being better than you were last week because you, oh. Like you must be reminded that you belong. And then, oh, then the sky's the limit. You can put to death the, 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 the flesh. You can, you can come alive to the beauty of the power of the spirit. Like, I want to be this person. I want y'all to be, I want to know these people that are fully alive, gentle and kind and loving and joyful. Like, don't you want to be this? Man, I want to be more of that. And the spirit wants to do it in us. Let us be those people by looking to him and believing him that it is a finished. You belong. It is well with your soul, loved ones. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what his, Paul's good news for you today. You can change and he will do it in you. And will you let him? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I long to see your grace more fully alive in me. Lord, I long to see your power, the resurrected power of Jesus manifested in ways that that like changed my heart and then by so doing changed my family and my community. And Lord, there is no power in my hands. The power of your spirit's alive in each one of us. And so we want to be attentive to the spirit. We want to keep in step with the spirit. We want to be listening to your spirit, telling us the truth about Jesus. So as we take these elements, as we put this bread in our mouth and, and drink this cup, Lord, we want to be reminded we want to see you once again, high and lifted up, the beauty and the grace that you've given us through yourself, through your sacrifice. We want to see that. We want to take it in. We want it to change our hearts. Would you do so in us to the praise of your glory for your kingdom's sake? We ask this by your spirit in the name of Christ, to whom belongs all glory and honor and majesty, both now and forever. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this is your meal of remembrance. So come and receive the grace of Christ and the body and blood for you.